Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. In our text this morning, Mark records two supernatural events that we may approach with some ambiguity or skepticism. Perhaps you want to believe in these stories, but at the same time you wonder if Mark has, has exaggerated these stories, or maybe they're just allegories. We try to look for more rational explanations of what really happened. Heinrich Paulus, an 18th century rationalistic theologian, was such an individual who believed that all of Jesus' miracles have natural explanations. For instance, in the first supernatural event that we're about to read in a a short time, he claimed that Jesus did not rebuke the storm and said, be still, be peace, be still. He argues that the disciples misunderstood him. Instead, he just cried out, what a dreadful storm. It must be over soon. (laughs) Garland is right in saying that one is no less credulous if one believes this kind of natural explanation than if one believes that Jesus calmed the sea with his word, as Mark reports. He adds, In dealing with the miracles of Jesus, one should not decide in advance what is is or is not possible. We ought never prejudge that something certainly cannot happen. We miss the point if we swap the miraculous elements with some natural explanation that supposedly will make more sense to the well-educated modern mind. Science is useful in debunking fraudulent claims but it is not the final appeal for the truth of miracles because science's basic assumption is that something is not real if it is not replicable and not measurable. When we come to the text this morning, we have to embrace the fact that the miracles we read before us did happen. And in the 21st century, we do not need less God's miraculous and supernatural power. We do not need God's intervention less. In fact, we need need it more. We need to see more of the miracles of God in this day and age. So let's go to our text in chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, verses 35 to 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along. Just as he was in the boat, There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping in a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus continues to spend much of his time by the freshwater lake of Galilee, which is about 22 kilometers long and 11 kilometers wide. Wherever you stand, you can see the entire sweep of the lake. This explains how the crowds could follow Jesus around the shore while he crossed the lake on a boat. 
Together with the disciples, and this is not limited to the 12th, as Mark tells us there were other boats with him, they launched eastward across the lake. Mark doesn't state the reason, but we can be certain it's because Jesus is wanting to preach elsewhere. Uh, Mark 1.35, and to meet a certain man. The Sea of Galilee is famed for tempestuous weather conditions due to its locations. The sea can get really rough and very quickly. Unsurprisingly, the disciples found themselves in the middle of the storm. The furious squall in verse 7 can mean hurricane in Greek. So what we're talking about here is a huge, huge, huge storm that scared the living daylights out of seasoned fishermen. Ironically, while the disciples are freaked out by the storm, Jesus, a carpenter, by profession, is sound asleep on a sailor's cushion in the stern of the boat. He's very tired. But his ability to sleep in the midst of an unexpected and raging storm is also a sign of his complete trust in God. This is in stark contrast, of course, with his terrifying disciples. Ironically, the only place in the Gospels where we find Jesus asleep is during the storm. You don't find, don't read about Jesus sleeping elsewhere. It's just in the storm that we find Jesus asleep. The boat is taking in water and it's in uh, danger of capsizing. The disciples are trying to stay afloat, but everything they tried was not working. They wake Jesus up as a last resort. After all of their efforts were not working, they wake him up and then they reproach him. Don't you care if we drown? Jesus, wake up. How could you sleep at such a time as this? And they're peeved at his apparent lack of, uh, at his apparent indifference and lack of care for their safety. In that lying, don't you care if we drown, they're attacking his character. You don't care for us. Jesus doesn't take offense. He gets up, and upon realizing what's going on, he was really asleep, folks. Okay, He wasn't pretending to be asleep, he was really asleep. So he wakes up and then realizes what's going on. He rebukes the wind and says, says to the waves, quiet. Be still and stay still. The wind and waves do exactly as Jesus says. It is, uh, I think this is reminiscent of God's deliverance of the people of Israel at the Red Sea. He then says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have not faith? It is not their fear per se that upsets Jesus. Okay, let's be clear about that. You see, if... In that condition, in that situation, if you do not experience fear or any emotion, you're not a human being. So Jesus wasn't upset at them for their fear per se. Rather, Jesus was upset at them for responding to the storm as if he wasn't there and as if Jesus didn't care. That's what he was upset about. That the disciples reacted to the storm, reacted to the situation as if Jesus wasn't there and as if Jesus didn't care. That's what he was upset about. And then a funny thing happens. They're now freaking out at Jesus, at his divine power and complete authority over nature. They were freaking out when Jesus didn't do anything with the storm. Now they're freaking out that Jesus does something with the storm. All right. I mean, what were they expecting when they woke Jesus up? 
right? Well, they woke him up precisely so that he could do something about the storm. And yet when Jesus did it, but who are you? How could you have such enormous authority over nature itself? I mean, yeah, curing people, healing the sick, we get that, but commanding the storm to be still? What are you, a superman? They know Jesus, but clearly he's still a stranger to them. They have only the vaguest inkling of who Jesus is. Aren't we the same? I wonder how many times Jesus says to us, do you still not know me? Do you still doubt that I love you and that I have your best interest at heart? Whenever you go through a storm, why, why is it that the first thought that comes to your mind is gone? You don't care. Are you noticing what I'm going through? Are you experiencing what I'm experiencing? Do you even notice my circumstance right now? I pray and nothing happens. I talk and I feel like my prayers can't get past the ceiling. You just don't seem to be there. And then Jesus says, after all these years, do you still, is that the first thought that comes to your mind? Don't you care, Lord, if we drown? And then we have the second extraordinary miracle that Jesus performs, and it's Mark's third and most graphic exorcism story so far. And there's going to be another, uh, there's going to be a fourth and the last one. We'll look at that in a few weeks' time. In, in this incident, it's the healing of a demoniac. Demo, demoniac, I, I think demoniac is how you say the word. So is that how you say it? Demo, demoniac, demoniac, uh, you know, someone who's possessed by a demon. Mark's account is uh, more detailed than Matthew's and Luke's. Mark, uh, Matthew only spends six verses on the story in contrast to Mark's 20 verses. This is the man that Jesus has traveled across the lake to meet in an area called the Decapolis or the Ten Towns. The significance of this location is that the people who live here are mostly Gentiles. So this explains the presence of pigs, as we will read about shortly. And we know also that pork is forbidden food for Jews. We know nothing of this man's past, but we know something of his present. And his present condition is quite shocking. Completely in the grip of demons and beyond human help, his home is in tombs, which were frequently located in caves and were known as haunts for demons. He survives, presumably, feeding off food left for the dead. Often chained hand and, food, hand and feet to protect the community from harm he might bring, he break these chains off easily. No one, Mark writes, was strong enough to subdue him. And the Greek word translated subdue is used for taming a wild animal. In other words, the community treats him like a wild animal because he acts like one. And it's, and it's expected he's banished from the community, condemned to live on his own amid the decaying bones of the dead, with no one to love and no one to love him. Night and day, in verse 5, among the tombs, night and day, Mark writes, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So this man is clearly in torment. I like Garland's take. 
This man is a microcosm of the whole of creation, inarticulately groaning for redemption. That a human being could be reduced to zombie-like conditions is shocking. And these stories abound. We just don't hear about it. So let's pick up the rest of the story in verse 6. When Jesus is still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. This is the demon speaking. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us. Send us to those pigs. The spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed men and the pigs. Then a great revival broke out and as hundreds, hundreds turned to the Lord in joyous repentance, convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, for no man could do what he did. That's not in your Bible, I made that up. <laughs> oh, you know, yes, yes. Well, that didn't happen. This is what it says, verse 17, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Astonishing, isn't it? Leave us alone. Get out of our town. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the men who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home. Go home to your family and tell them everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Now, it is very easy to get distracted by the myriad of questions this story raises, such as, do demons need a host? Why the need to destroy the pigs? And what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? Did they die with the pigs too? How could Jesus do that to the pigs? What sense is that? Is there in him doing this? Look, there are, I'm sure you have lots of questions. The most important thing for us to remain focused on is the fact that Mark tells this miracle and the previous one to reinforce Jesus' full identity as the divine Son of God. No human being can do what Jesus did, is Mark's point. Mark does what only God can do. The healing of this man is nothing short of a miracle. The changes to the man are night and day. 
You know, it reminds me of the scene in Lord of the Rings where uh, King Theoden was, was delivered by, by Gandalf. Can you remember that scene? Anybody? Any fans here of Lord of the Rings? Yeah, that scene. This, that scene reminds me of the story. King Theoden is completely possessed, and Gandalf with a staff commanded the evil spirit to leave, and he becomes completely transformed and changed. The other significant thing Mark wants us to see it's the reaction of the people who knew what the man was like before. Instead of joyful celebration at the sight of this man's complete recovery and deliverance from the destructive forces of demons, they were afraid in the same way as the disciples were when Jesus calmed the storm. What a bizarre response. Remember, they had tried and tried and tried to tame him with chains, but to no avail. But Jesus, with a word, frees the man. He becomes sane. You could actually talk to him. He's normal again. He can speak. And instead of finding out more about Jesus, instead of finding out how he healed the man, instead of giving him the key to the city, they want him gone. They want him out of their community. They want to have nothing to do with Jesus. All they could see is dead pigs rather than a living, breathing miracle before them. That they consider Jesus more dangerous and worrisome than the, de than the demons has got to be the saddest point in the story. The notion that miracles necessarily generate faith and interest in, in God is debunked right here. There are those who will reject God no matter what evidence is in front of them. So, in addressing the so what question, so what, we've heard all of this, so what, I'd like to suggest two things for our consideration this morning. Number one, we may not have witnessed the miracles we just read, or these miracles may not ever be replicated, but this does not mean that Jesus cannot perform or doesn't perform miracles in the 21st century. He does. And that's because in the 21st century, we do not need his miracles any less. The human heart is not any better now than those in the days of Jesus. Those without Christ now are just as spiritually dead and in bondage to evil as the ones back in Jesus' days. For those of us who are in Christ, we're just as flawed, broken as the early disciples and the early church. We need God to intervene in our lives. If we believe that we need less the miracles of Jesus, I want to suggest that we're in effect saying that we need God less. We think we need God less because of the faith we place in significant advancements we've been able to make over the centuries in a whole range of fields. For instance, I thank God for medicine. I really, really, really do. But my faith is and cannot be in doctors ultimately. Putting my faith in human advances, no matter how significant, only reviews my quest to be self-sufficient, which started with Adam and Eve. And self-sufficiency is one of the main reasons why we're so prayerless and why we don't expect miracles. It is because of the illusion that we have what it takes to sort things ourselves that we're prayerless, that we don't turn to God more often. The truth is we don't have what it takes to sort things out ourselves. There are enormous challenges and obstacles in life that unless God supernaturally intervenes, there's simply no way out. 
Humility recognizes that. Pride poo-poos that. Kun Pout, I think that's how you say her name. She's a Khmer, a 19-year-old girl who escaped the Khmer Rouge rule in Cambodia after an arduous journey with 100 others through the kilometers of jungle, canals, mountains, and rivers. Standing between them and freedom were the brutal Khmer Rouge soldiers, the elements in a stretch of jungle that's covered with thorns. This is a true story. Most of the escapees wore, uh, were barefoot or wore flimsy thongs. A midnight light darkness hampered the struggling group as it crossed the valley between two mountain ranges. We could see absolutely nothing, Pout later told a missionary. We didn't even, didn't even know where to step. Suddenly, suddenly, hundreds of fireflies swarmed into view. Their glow made light for the people to see the path. The refugees reached the next mountain by firefly light. Stunning, isn't it? After Pout was transferred to Kamput refugee camp, she was invited to a Christian meeting. I know that old man, she exclaimed at a picture on the wall of the chapel. He's the one who led us and showed us the way to Thailand and freedom. She was pointing to a portrait of Jesus. Amazing, huh? That's a miracle for you. It happened in the 70s. So this notion that Jesus doesn't perform miracles is rubbish. Jesus performs miracles to this day. We're kidding ourselves when we think we can do what God asks of us without his miracle working powers outworking in and through our lives. There is another reason why we're kidding ourselves if we think we have what it takes to sort things out ourselves without his miracle working powers. And that is this, we're up against supernatural powers that oppose God, that destroy life, deface it, defeat it, and deform it. The only way you can dismiss what I'm saying is by suggesting that the story about the demoniac is exaggerated or told through primitive eyes before the development of psychiatry and psychology. And right there, folks, is our arrogance that just because a phenomenon cannot be explained rationally, it must necessarily be absurd, untrue, hocus-pocus, and gobbledygook. Some years ago, I was sharing the gospel in India with a man who lived in a slum. An Indian colleague of mine had gotten to know this guy, a Hindu, over several weeks and had shared his testimony with him. My friend asked if I would be interested in paying him a visit. I said, sure, let's go and talk to him. So he acted my, as my interpreter and I shared my story and I uh, shared briefly the, the gospel with him as well. And then I asked him without applying any pressure whatsoever or using any form of trickery if he, wanted, if he wanted to surrender his life to Jesus and start with a clean slate. And I insisted that it was fine if he was not ready to make such a decision. But he nodded his head excitedly. Yes, I want to do it. And so I said, okay, you can pray after me. So I led him in a word of prayer with, with my friend translating, and uh, he repeated after me. 
And we were humming along just fine, and then suddenly he stopped praying. And then I repeated my line, and complete silence for him from him. And that's when I opened my eyes and I said to him, what's up? What's, what's going on? Have you changed your mind? Uh, do you, do you, have you reconsidered uh, what, what, what you've just decided to do? No, 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 no. Oh, have you changed your mind? He said, no, 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 I haven't changed my mind. I really want to pray, but I feel two hands choking my neck. I can't get the words out. I want to, to pray after you, but I can't get the words out. And would you know, the point where he couldn't get his words out was, Jesus, I make you Lord of my life. That's when he got stuck. That's when he felt the pressure of two hands choking him so that he was unable to say after me, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Isn't that interesting? So my colleague and I explained what was going on. Hey, we're in a spiritual battle here. The enemy doesn't want you to make this confession. And he doesn't want you to be a child of God. He wants you to believe that you are in bondage to him. So we're going to pray for you. Okay, let's pray. So we pray. Uh, so we pray. I pray for him. We say, in Jesus' name, uh, evil spirits that are preventing this guy from becoming a child of God, we command you now to let loose his tongue, let loose his neck, release him. And then we turned to the guy and said, are you feeling any better? He says, no, I'm not. So we prayed again. Uh, don't get discouraged, right? Oh, man of little faith. So we prayed maybe once or twice more. I can't remember. But by the time we finished, I think the third time we prayed, we said, how are you feeling? says, yes, I'm, I'm good to go, I'm good to go. I can pray now, I think. So we went, we completed the prayer. I, Jesus, I make you Lord of my life. And he was able to pray. Now, immediately, a guy in the room, whom I had not noticed, who had been there the whole time, got our attention. He said, I listened to your testimony. I listened to the gospel that you shared with my cousin. I didn't know he was his cousin. He didn't even know he was there. I, too, had decided to surrender my life to Jesus and pray after you quietly. But like my cousin, I got stuck exactly at the same point that he did. And I felt this choking sensation like he did over my throat. So I said, come on over, we'll pray for him. And we did the same thing. This time maybe we prayed once and he was fine. I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, isn't that interesting? Hey? So you don't believe in the existence of evil spirits? Think about it. I didn't make that up. I'm not making it up. I saw what I saw. I witnessed what I witnessed. And this guy had no reason to lie to me and make up a story like that. He clearly wanted to pray. Like you could tell, I, I want to pray, but I, I, I can't get the words out. Would you please pray for me? There was some, he, he looked terrified, actually. Come, come to remember uh, the story. He looked terrified. He wanted to be set free. As the Apostle Paul uh, pleads with us and cautions us in Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil spirits. That's, that is why we are to put on the whole armor of God to prepare for evil days, which is not some one-off event or specific set of circumstances. The metaphor is for the whole of the Christian life. Our battle is not a mystical one, but one that takes place in our everyday lives. John writes, 
Every day we make choices about whether we're obedient to God and what we say, what we think, what we do, how we treat others. Those decisions, that choice between being obedient to go or remaining a slave to sin, that is the battle Paul speaks of. In other words, spiritual warfare is much less dramatic than the warfare metaphor that Paul uses. Another thing about spiritual warfare is that it is more a corporate affair than a personal one. This doesn't mean that we don't face personal temptations, but Paul's message on warfare is given after his focus on unity. This battle is so serious. In other words, Paul says, it is vital that we're in it together and not fight like we are on our own. We're to bear our burdens, but we're also to carry one another's burdens. And finally, the outcome of our battle is certain. The battlefield is not flat with both sides fighting with an equal advantage. It is actually more like there's a big there's a hill in the middle of the battlefield and we are at the top. It's Satan and his minions who are trying to take the hill or reclaim ground. We're fighting from a position of strength while he's on the back foot. Alan writes, the reason that the armor of God is mainly defensive is because we're defending a victory already won, not battling to take something that's not yet ours. Jesus has won on the cross, and he has all authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and he delegates that authority to each one of us in which we must exercise. So this means there's no room for complacency. We watch and pray. As Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. What about our application? Are there impossible situations you or someone you know are facing? This week, I want to encourage you to pray, to be in prayer and ask God for a miracle. Ask God for his supernatural intervention. Wait with expectancy, but remember to leave the miracle with God. He will perform a miracle, but the miracle he performs may not meet your expectations. It may come in the way you least expect it. You see, for thousands of years, Jews were longing for the coming of the Messiah to save them miraculously. He did come and intervened supernaturally. But because he did it in a way they least expected, they missed it completely except for a handful of people. He was right there in the midst of them, and yet they did not recognize him, the Apostle John says. He went on to perform the greatest miracle of all by living the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died on the cross for our sins to save them and save us. Let us not become like this man in the picture and miss God's miracle altogether as right in front of him. See? And I think we're often in, in those sorts of situations. God has done his bid, he has produced miracles, he's answered our prayers, but we're just too glued to our phones to notice. Because he acted in a way we didn't expect. He answered our prayer in a way we didn't expect. And so we're not watching, we're not anticipating, we're not looking out for what he's actually doing. But there's the miracle right there. He performs it. Open your eyes and see the miracle he performs, even though he does not perform it according to your specs. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. I do pray that, that we will not be like this man. 
I do believe, Lord, that you answer our prayers far more than we realize. That you perform miracles in ways that we just don't notice. I'm reminded of this guy who's in a flood and he's at the roof. And, and a boat comes and, and, and a guy yells out, come on, uh, you're in a flood, jump on the boat. And he says, no, I'm praying that God will save me. And then another person came, another person came. And each time he said, I'm praying, I'm praying that God will save me. And then eventually the flood rose and uh, he died. And then he goes to heaven and then he complains to you, God. God, why didn't you save me? I, I, I cried out to you for miracle. I asked you to save me and you didn't. And you said to the man, I sent you a man. I sent you this person. I sent you that person. And you ignored each provision each time. So I pray for that one. I ask God that you will perform a miracle for the situations that we find ourselves in or for a situation that our loved ones are in. We present them to you now. We ask that you supernaturally intervene. But Lord, we are at the same time saying to you, Lord, do it. Have your way. Do it in the way that you see fit. And help us notice the miracles, even if they don't come in the manner in which we expect. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.